Good evening, and welcome to this evening's program uh, entitled Disobedient Dances, a Jewish choreographer in Soviet Russia. This program is presented, is co-presented by the Contemporary Jewish Museum, San Francisco Ballet, and the Museum of Performance and Design. And my name is Muriel Maffrey. I am the director of the Museum of Performance and Design. Um, today, we have um, the honor to um, host Janice uh, Ross, um, who will talk uh, to us about Leonie Jacobson, drawing from her recent book and also from uh, Leonid's um, own archive showing excerpts of video. And I want to take a moment to um, uh, share with you that Janice uh, built an exhibit online of um, images and, and a few moving images as well. It's a small exhibit that accompanies her book that you can visit following uh, the talk tonight. And you can find the link on the Museum of Performance and Design's website. And you can have direct access to that exhibit of additional images and moving images. It's a great honor for me to be able to welcome um, Janice Frost this evening. Janice is a professor at uh, the Theater and Performance Studies Department at Stanford and faculty director at Italic, uh, the new freshman residential arts immersion program at Stanford University. Her previous books include San Francisco Ballet at 75, Anna Halprin, Experience as Dance, Moving Lessons, Margaret H. Dabler, The Beginning of Dance in American Education, she received a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Fulbright Scholar Fellowship to Israel, two Stanford Humanities Center Fellowships, a Memorial Foundation for Jewish Culture Fellowship, a Jacobs Pillow Research Fellowship, and a 2015 Israel Institute grant. For 10 years, she was the staff dance critic at the Oakland Tribune, and for 20 years, the San Francisco contributing editor to Dance Magazine. Her article on dance have also appeared in the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times, among others. She's the past president of both the International Society of Dance History Scholars and the Dance Critics Association. I had the great pleasure to be able to work with Janice at Stanford when I was on faculty um, for three years and uh, working under her leadership and her, her guidance, and it was a real privilege um, to grow as, as a teacher uh, under her, her leadership. Um, so with no further ado, uh, I would like, uh, I invite you to join me in welcoming Janice. Well, thank you all for coming. It's really wonderful to see so many familiar faces. Um, it's a real pleasure. And I want to thank Muriel and the staff of the Museum and Performance and Design again for making this possible. Gravity Goldberg and the Contemporary Jewish Museum, um, Wendy, San Francisco Ballet, and also a special behind the scenes force, which is Artie Bienenstock, who really was the visionary many months ago who said, you know, you really ought to do an event with the Contemporary Jewish Museum and the Museum of Performance and Design, and you should talk with Muriel about that. So we're here because of you, and I thank you immensely. It's a first-time collaboration between the two institutions, and I think it's, it's wonderful. I hope it's the beginning of many more.
Dance, and particularly ballet, is not customarily thought of as dangerous or a place for civic disobedience or political bravery. But this evening, I would like to challenge that. I would like to argue that perhaps surprisingly, it was in fact a charged arena for cultural resistance and the de facto demonstration of heroism during the darkest days of Stalinist control in Soviet Russia. To do this, I'll share with you the story of this remarkable artist, Leonid Jakobsen, the only Jewish choreographer working in the highest tiers of culture production in the USSR, and that's the Kirov and Bolshoi ballets. On these stages, Jakobsen shaped ballet into a risky medium of defiance during the decades of Soviet repression that reduced so many others to blind despair. There is a special poignancy to tracing this on Yom HaShoah, the day of remembrance of the Holocaust and heroism, because Jakobsen was repeatedly subject to official forgetting and systematic erasure in his lifetime because of his Jewishness and his artistic audacity. And each of those bolstered the other. His name, much less his work and his heroism, were not supposed to go forward in history. During his lifetime, essentially no books, no films, no profiles, few articles, and almost no reviews of him and his work were permitted by Soviet authorities. For most of his life, his name was forbidden from even, even being written in Pravda and Izvetsia, the two leading Soviet newspapers. And this continued up until his death in 1975, when no formal obituary ever appeared. Jakobsen was born in St. Petersburg in 1904, the same month and year as George Balanchine. Jakobsen was the grandson of the concertmaster of the Imperial Ballet, and he grew up in a rich period of experimentation, which was the 1920s Silver Age in Russia. He created 178 ballets in a career spanning 50 years, working again for the Bolshoi Kirov and eventually his own company, the first solo artist-led company since the 1920s in the USSR. He cannily navigated both the absurd horror of Stalinist Russia and the cultural thaw following the death of Stalin. His resilient optimism enabled him to survive as a defiant artist. Other innovative Russian choreographers from the teens and 20s left before the borders closed. People such as Balanchine, Vaslav Nijinsky, Bronislava Nijinska, Michelle Fokine. And they carried that modernist impulse out into the West where it flourished. Jakobsen's lot was that he had to unfold it in the lockdown totalitarian state of the Soviet Union. He was immensely productive despite these hardships, challenged actually rather than intimidated by the restrictions imposed by censors on his works. So this raises for me a series of very provocative questions which I'd like to explore with you. Um, and that's really how do we unpack this idea of dance becoming disobedient and dangerous. And I'd like to start with the question of why ballet? Why was ballet the battleground for these issues? And then how could it actually be disobedient and dangerous? And then finally, what does that disobedience look like on the ground in the choreography? Now, for those in the West, it might be a shocking assertion to claim that ballet could be a risky and defiant practice, that dances, in fact, could be resistant to authority 
even perilous, and that the public might need to be shielded from choreographers. And this was the surrounding for, um, for Jakobsen. This is a moment when he happened in 1962 to re-meet Balanchine backstage at the Kirov. It was the occasion of New York City Ballet's cultural exchange. Um, the Bolshoi went to New York, the Kirov came to Russia. For so many years, George Balanchine's work has asserted just the opposite, that contemporary ballet was effectively plotless and free of ideology, that it was politically neutral. And it's been my puzzlement about this question of ballet as disobedient and dangerous that began the search that led to my book. Prior to writing this, I had been intrigued for years every time I heard stories from defecting celebrity dancers, um, including Rudolf Nureyev, Natalia Makarova, uh, Mikhail Baryshnikov, they carried with them stories of this one modernist, this one renegade artist in the USSR. The refusenik Valery Panov, when he was finally allowed to emigrate to Israel, also brought the same whispered notion of one modernist who happened to be Jewish. And I became more and more intrigued, and they described the impact of his work as being like a bomb going off in the theater for audiences, and I took that as my title. Now, a direct link to this legacy um, of danger in Soviet ballet arrived in San Francisco in 1985 when Irina Jakobsen, Jakobsen's widow, was hired by Helgi Thomason to teach in the San Francisco Ballet School and Company. She had been prevented from leaving the USSR for three years as a refusenik, and I archive everything. This is from 1981 when this document crossed my desk. While she was being held um, in the USSR, a plea went out for people to write letters on her behalf. Um, she also was Jewish. And um, there was an active letter writing campaign sponsored by the Bay Area Council for Soviet Jewry, which helped in large part to finally free her. The reason for the Soviets' refusal to allow her to emigrate, and it, it is written up here but hard to see, was simply the phrase state considerations. As a former ballerina with the Kirov, they argued that if they let her leave, she was going to restage the entire Russian repertoire that she carried in her memory, thus giving away the nation's cultural patrimony in the West. During the 12 years that she did live in San Francisco, she taught company class, coached the classical ballets in the repertoire, and assisted Helgi Thomason in numerous ways. And then one season, she mounted a rare staging of five of her husband's legendary pas de deux, the Rodin series, based on the French artist's sculptures. It was during these early years in San Francisco that I came to know Madame Jacobson and began the research that culminated in the book. And I love this image. I don't think Wendy has seen it probably in years. Uh, she just saw it tonight. This is Wendy and Jim so or Tom Rood rehearsing. Uh, the Minotaur and the Nymph, which you're going to see bits of a little bit later. Now, initially, as I wrote about Jakobsen as a journalist for newspapers, my editors kept coming back to me with the same complaint. Great story, but where are the contemporaneous accounts of his work? Give us the voices of other critics. And I realized that Jakobsen's future was in danger of becoming hostage to his past because the erasure had been so complete. 
As I researched the book, my own methodology and perspective shifted, and I came to consider the disappearance, actually, a critical part of the story. Yet despite party efforts, he and his work became a touchstone for standing against authority and for not forgetting, for keeping the image of the Jew visible in the heart of where culture was produced in the USSR. So I'd like to shift now to this question of why ballet. One of the most telling but odd stories of connection between ballet and its power in Soviet Russia actually begins with the work Swan Lake. It's a piece Jakobsen never choreographed. He never touched the classics. Less than a month ago, many of you may remember, for nearly 11 days in mid-March, Vladimir Putin went missing. His meetings were canceled, he disappeared from the public eye, and the Kremlin refused to explain what was going on. Speculation in Russia spun out of control. Was his mistress giving birth to a secret child? Had he had a stroke? Plastic surgery? Maybe it was a coup. Ukrainians at war with Russian-backed separatists in the east of their country were particularly excited by the latter possibility. Andrei Kapranov, a web marketer in Kiev, lost no time in creating this website to track the Russian leader's disappearance. On the site, in big bold numbers, it counted down in real time the days, hours, minutes, and seconds since Putin had last been seen. And in the background, the site played a loop endlessly of Swan Lake. And now that he's resurfaced, the um, website is still up, but the count are these larger numbers in the bottom, which is the days, hours, minutes, and seconds that Putin has been leading Russia. So it's a new target. Another example. Last May, this was the image of Ukrainian resistance and Swan Lake that circulated. Under the headline, Ballerinas Dance Anti-Putin Swan Lake in Odessa, four Ukrainian ballerinas in tutus and point shoes held hands to dance the four signets from Swan Lake in an act of protest against Putin and Russian forces when they invaded Ukraine. It was staged outdoors with military vehicles as the backdrop and it was intended as a gesture of defiance. The suggestion was that even Ukraine's corps de ballet dancers know their way around a ballistic missile launcher. But why Swan Lake? President Vladimir Putin is just the latest in a long line of Russian leaders to use the arts to orchestrate his political power. Russians have long understood this intimate connection between art and power, both its demonstration of holding power and its continual reinforcement of that power through censorship and rules designed to control art before it ever reaches the public. For anyone who lived in the former USSR, this use of Swan Lake as a politically charged medium made perfect sense. For many former Soviet Union Russians, the opening strains of Chayskov Tchaikovsky's score may be as likely to remind them of political upheaval now as the beauty of classical ballet. This association began in earnest in 1982 when Leonid Brezhnev died unexpectedly after nearly 20 years in power. Anxious over possible civic unrest, the state-controlled TV stations cut into all regular programming, not with news of Brezhnev's death or an announcement of his successor, no. Instead, broadcasts of Swan Lake in its full-length, three-hour expanse took over the airwaves. 
in an endless video loop. The same thing happened in rapid succession when Yuri Andropov died in 1984 after only 15 months in office, and 13 months later his successor, Konstantin Chernenko, expired. Three Soviet leaders lost in three years, and three deployments of Swan Lake broadcasts. Finally, in August 1991, when a group of communist hardliners attempted to overthrow Mikhail Gorbachev's government, television programs again were interrupted. The only thing on state TV was a continuous loop of Swan Lake. Sergei Filiatov, a member of the Russian legislature, was on vacation at the time, and he said, quote, I turned on the TV and saw the swans dancing. For five minutes, 10 minutes, for an hour, I realized that something had happened. He quickly flew to Moscow where squads of tanks rather than a corps de ballet were rolling through the streets. Now these broadcasts were more than a stalling tactic. I would argue that they were social tranquilizers. A way to model civic compliance and social regulation through the dancing body and music and ballet practices in which Soviet Russia set a world standard. Essentially, stay calm, dance on. Eventually, Swan Lake was so often the backdrop for Soviet political upheavals that soon just seeing it on television triggered the very anxiety it was supposed to allay. Instantly, people knew that those dancing white waterfowl meant all was not well in Moscow. In a final ironic citation in 2011, long after the dissolution of the USSR, the 20th anniversary of the 1991 putsch attempt was commemorated with documentaries, and you guessed it, a rebroadcast of Swan Lake. This time, however, columns of tanks were not grinding through the Moscow streets as they had been two decades earlier, when the ballet was used as an information blockade and a social palliative. Now going back to Lunacharsky, the Commissar of Enlightenment in the USSR's early days, dance and cinema had been selected as important mediums for messaging to what was a largely illiterate proletariat about the new Soviet state and its ideals and aspirations. The stages of the formal imperial ballet and Bolshoi were where the idealized, unmarked body of the citizen was effectively manufactured. So Jakobsen, as a voice of dissent, was staging resistance from within the site of the most public vocabulary of compliance in the USSR, the ballet stage. He was working right at the nexus of danger and power. This is a 1970s USSR TV. I think it still would have been a hot model in the mid-1980s, though. And this is what you would have gotten on your state TV channel. It is an endless loop of the core in the second act. I won't make you live through any more of it than that, though. All right. Jakobsen never looked over his shoulder. He just made the ballets he wanted to and then negotiated point by point if a concession were necessary for officials to permit a work on stage. I do what the music tells me, he liked to say. But then he picked composers like Shostakovich and Stravinsky, whose very inclusion was itself a trigger, because they were forbidden. Now I'd like to take you through an example of five brief excerpts from his dances to show you what the disobedience looked like in action across his choreography. 
But first, I wanted to read you just a very brief um, excerpt that suggests something for me that answers one of, one of the big questions, which is where did he get the fortitude and strength um, to keep going in the face of such relentless um, criticism? And I think it came from this remarkable early experience he had as an orphan for two years. So I'm just going to read a small passage here. No photo exists of the iron knuckles that the teenage Leonid Jakobsen obtained in the autumn of 1918. He acquired the knuckles to protect his two younger brothers from older children stealing their warm coats when the three Jakobsen boys, Leonid 14, Sergei 13, and Constantine 12, were part of the Petrograd children's colony a storied encampment of 800 orphan children trapped in the Ural Mountains near Western Siberia during the Bolshevik Revolution. Jakobsen kept these iron knuckles in his pocket for most of his life, explaining that they offered him a sense of security while returning from work late at night. It's not always safe in the Soviet Union, he said. Now, just jumping to um, how he came to be in that storied colony. In the months following the Bolshevik takeover of the October Revolution and its collapse into the tumult, tumult, tumult of the proletariat dictatorship of early 1918, Jakobsen's mother, Vera Jakobsen, found herself unable to feed and clothe her five children. She decided to keep her two older daughters with her, but take her three sons to Petrograd's Finland station, where she put them on one of three train caravans filled with children, whose parents were similarly sending them to a safer location with more food. The expectation was that they would spend the summer regaining their health and enjoying the outdoors under the close supervision of a group of teachers, medical staff, and return home by train in a couple of months once everything returned to normal. From the start, however, the journey did not go as anticipated. What should have been a two-day trip into the town of Mias in the southern Urals, the original destination, stretched into a four-week ordeal because of the chaos of the railroad system. There were repeated delays due to mined bridges, threats to security, and day-long stops when the children would leave the train just to search for food. Finally, in July, the transport arrived at a summer resort on the Mias River, and the children began a two-month period of taking classes, swimming, and rejuvenating. But by August, tensions between the Bolsheviks and other parties had deteriorated into a full-scale Russian civil war. An army of 80,000 Czech troops was trying to cross the breadth of Russia, and the Poles had invaded. Piecing together what happened from a series of unpublished archival reports in, from the field made by members of the American Red Cross, it seems the spreading famine, currency devaluation, and social chaos cut off the children from their families and made it impossible to even send them money, food, or clothing. With the chill of the Siberian fall beginning and the food supplies the colony had brought with them exhausted, the Russian teachers and staff overseeing hundreds of hungry children in worn clothing panicked. As food for the children diminished to watery soup made from rotten vegetables, the frightened teachers divided the children into seven groups and sent them out in different directions, hoping townspeople and villagers might take them in. Then most of the Russian teachers and staff fled, taking with them all of the remaining money and abandoning the hundreds of children. 
and that was the beginning of his adolescence. He survived it, um, ended up on a two-year kind of exodus around the, um, around the world um, by shipboard that the American Red Cross um, orchestrated to save the children. But I think it was, it was a monumental way for him to get an outsider's view of Soviet Russia. When he returned, um, absolute secrecy closed over that experience. You could not say you had been in the West at peril of your life um, because you had been exposed to the outside. And it was 40 years before he spoke to anyone of that experience. Um, so that, that was kind of this amazing launch um, that, that I think really set, set him in motion to, to not look over his shoulder. All right, I'm going to jump in now to the late 1940s. Jakobsen has, he, he returns, he discovers dance, he becomes a dancer with the Kirov and a choreographer. And um, he has a flourishing career until Stalin's campaign against the Jews really takes off in the late 1940s. And Jakobsen comes to work one day at the Kirov Theater and on the wall backstage where the company newspaper is plastered up daily, because this is an institution that employs hundreds, not just artistic, but te technical staff people, he sees um, a non-byline article that says there's a rootless cosmopolitan in our midst. That's code for Jew. And he understands and he is effectively fired on the spot. He doesn't work for another six years. Uh, unemployed, with a family to support, he heads out um, to Moldova, where he becomes head of a new folk dance ensemble that is being created in Kishinev. Um, and he arrives there late 48, just a few years after the Jewish community of Kishinev, which was one of the oldest in the USSR, had been devastated by the Nazi invasion during the Holocaust when 53,000 of the 65,000 Jews were killed. Jakobsen is intent on discovering rather than manufacturing culture, and he begins to create works based on what he sees in the few surviving little shtetl villages um, around Kishinev. And this is one of only two ballets that survive from that period. I'm gonna to try to talk through it as you're looking at it. It's called Jewish Couple, and he had a hard time finding anyone in the Kirov to perform it because it was Jewish themed. So the female dancer is his wife, Irina, and the male dancer is Alexei Marinov. In the opening seconds of the dance, the young couple spill on stage in a cascade of flirtatiously tripping little footsteps. The impulse and affect are as if the sparkling point work of classical ballet were somehow being danced in mud cake work boots. The attack is there, but the daintiness is weighted and rounded. The choreography begins quickly unfolding a sequence of tableau, as if displaying movement snapshots of the couple's life to come. There's the flirtation, the commitment, the parental blessing, the wedding, and arrival of the firstborn. They all pour from the two dancers like photographs from the memories of Kishnev's Jews. Jewish couple seems almost over-eager in the density of its packed references to Jewish culture, from the shtetl couture that the dancers wear, to klezmer rhythms, to the animated facial gestures of hope, then despair. The ethnicity of Jewish culture encrusts these two flirtatious yet shy characters. 
Their postures often include the hunched shoulders and upward raised palms and shortened neck. That's a movement cliche of a Jew conversing with God, asking, why me? Several other identifiably Jewish gestures are indexed, ranging from the woman's gesture of shielding her eyes and gazing downward as if uttering the Sabbath prayer over candles. And seconds later, both dancers stand with their arms side by side, outstretched, palms open, as if receiving a blessing. There's no point work partnering or elevation in the traditional sense. In its place, Jakobsen offers characters saturated with emotions, dreams, and sorrows. So five years later, Stalin dies. And um, it's uh, a couple years yet until Jakobsen is fully rehabilitated back in the Kirov, but he returns to Leningrad and to work. And the USSR is invited to contribute a work to a denazification concert that's being held in Vienna in 1954, and they choose Jakobsen to do it. And this is the ballet he comes up with. It's called Vienna Waltz. I think it's Jakobsen at his happiest, his easiest, his showiest moment of invention. He takes what are very simple limitations. You have two dancers, and you need to make a tribute to Vienna go forth and do it. And he makes it anything but a routine and dutiful effort. His vision that the dancers set in motion feels like a man bursting free. And I'm always reminded when I look at this of a wonderful statement the writer Solzhenitsyn made about what it was like after Stalin died. He said it was like a return to breathing um, for the USSR. I think this is what a return to breathing looks like choreographically. First you'll see the floor, then the air near it, and finally the sky are the backdrops against which the two dancers ride. There's not a single waltz step in this waltz. Instead, the miniature is a deft portrait of love from the moments of its casual meeting to the swelling excitement of its flirtation and ending with the chase off stage where there is a suggestion that it continues in perpetuity. Jakobsen's rhythmic bite and theatrical surprise are flawless and free of any heavy calculation or build. And I'm starting midpoint in the waltz where he does this series of 360 degree hurls of the ballerina. Um, and I will talk through it. Turn it up, please. Complete fearless throw of her. And he takes the music of Richard rather than Johann Strauss, which is a nod toward the attempt to denazify Richard Strauss as well. And it's very much a, a hybrid of a Viennese and Russian waltz in its luxuriousness. So again, everything is in waltz time, but there's no simple waltz step. And now, as the relationship gets more and more intimate, a very curious thing happens. He um, closes in on her, and you might miss it. Um, it looks as if he has something to say. Perhaps he's closing in for a kiss. She shields her face, turns away, and then very gently, he stands with his heels together and pulses softly with his upper body side to side, his arms upraised, fingers silently snapping. It's the pulse of a man's variation from a Russian Jewish wedding dance. He is a man in love, and he wants to reveal to her who he really is. 
Perhaps autobiographically, Jakobsen was doing the same to the Austrian audience. Vienna Waltz is an irrepressibly happy dance, and within this happy dance, Jakobsen has nested another tiny and quite personal dance of Jewish elation. And then it picks up, the rest of it is pure waltz. All right, now this is the one Jakobsen ballet that came to the West, and it was carried by Mikhail Brushnikov when he defected. The scene here is a dressing room backstage at the Bolshoi Theater in Moscow. The year is 1969, and Jakobsen was tapped to make the one contemporary ballet for Brushnikov in competing in this international ballet competition. And once again, he's very sly and in this vehicle for the greatest virtuoso of his generation, he gives him a showpiece and inserts six absolutely wild renegade social outliers in the midst of the ballet, which I'll show you a bit of. This is a moment in the dressing room when they're rehearsing. They seem to be trading gestures, but what Jakobsen is really showing Baryshnikov is how to put on a mask. And the emphasis is all on the putting on, nothing of the taking off. Here, Mikhail Baryshnikov and his teacher, Leonid Jakobsen, are going over a difficult part in the dance produced by Jakobsen to the music of Banshchikov. It calls for faultless technique and pantomime and has revealed Mikhail Badashnikov to be not only a magnificent dancer, but an excellent actor as well. It's very curious where that comes from. When I interviewed Barishnikov about it, he said he really didn't like it at the beginning. He wanted to do a bunch of aerial work and turns and showcase his technical virtuosity. And then he came to love it when he understood what was really going on. This is a, a bit of footage from Wolf Trap because Baryshnikov performed this extensively in the initial few years um, after he, he defects from the Kirov in 1974 when they're on tour in Canada. So here he's a drunkard. There are no drunkards in the USSR, and there he is, center stage in the Moscow competition. It's, it's a miniature inside of a miniature. In 30 seconds, he gives you this full characterization of a completely inebriated man. The mask goes on, and now he drops into an aged and very rapidly, fatally ill and dying man. And again, the whole body um, transforms, the jaw slackens, seems to lose teeth, the spine compresses, limbs stiffen. This is an inelegant death. It's a raw death. Not, not the kind of socialist realist beauty that's meant to be on the Kirov stage. It's clumsy, it's painful. Jakobsen was always criticized for using the floor. He, he was told Soviet citizens do not crawl on the floor. And then, it, this is just an insertion, uh, Baryshnikov hops up and he does the, the beautiful coded Baroque filigree movement from the Vestris lithographs that open and close the ballet in its midsections. Um, so, it's very much this, again, sneaky insertion of the forbidden and the aberrant body. 
Two years later, in 1971, Jakobsen begins work on Jewish wedding, without question the most daring and controversial work of all of his efforts to map the Jewish body onto the unmarked Soviet ideal. I'm going to show you a bit of rare archival footage of Jakobsen's Jewish wedding. It's set to Shostakovich's second piano trio for Ivan Solertinsky. Shostakovich himself had his own travails with Soviet authorities. Um, and it's a musical score loaded with sounds of, of Jewish folk melodies with the klezmer. On the surface, Jewish wedding looks like an a anachronistic little shtetl wedding. It's based on Sholem Aleichem's tales, the decor is after Chagall, but look a little deeper and it's actually a work of immense mourning and tragedy um, for a, a, a kind of vanishing, vanishing people. Um, it's more like a funeral than a wedding. It's very much about a poignant message of exile and displacement and disappearance. Sorry, I forgot, I had one little juicy clip here. This is Solomon Mikhoyles, founder and director of the Moscow State Yiddish Theater. And when I was trying to figure where did Jakobsen get that, um, that sort of excessive emotion in um, what he teaches Barishnikov, I think it could well have come from the Moscow State Yiddish Theater. This is a famous film of Mikhail's doing Lear that was in wide circulation from 35 forward. And he's keening over the body of the dead Cordelia. First, he brings his hands to his face um, in this kind of wail. And then he, it goes on for quite a while. I'm just showing you a tiny slice. He moves to the other side, and then it's this kind of manic laughter, and each time it's hands upraised to the face. So I think he's doubly coding a, a kind of quote that would have been recognizable in its time to Soviet Jews. And it's that, again, the extremes of the messiness of emotion, as far as you can get from socialist realist utopian happiness. <laughs> and of course, Mikhoyles is murdered by Stalin. Um, so the, the idea of what he's doing takes on an extra tinge of danger. These are modest though, compared with what is to come, and that is this work, Jewish Wedding. In 1971, Jakobsen begins work on his most daring piece. Um, it's, again, based on the Sholem Aleichem decor after Chagall. Um, and there's a tiny bit of footage I want to show you. This is just to show you Chagall's floating figures make a reappearance as dancers in Jakobsen's work. Um, it's the stage is like a thin, he plays with it like a thin apron and the characters walk downstage one by one, enter. This is the bride's friend. She's bursting with happiness. There's going to be a wedding. It's going to be wonderful. She's going to get pregnant and have many children. They're like little tiny wooden dolls on a string guided by some external force. This is the rabbi. Everything's in order. The papers are all prepared the kind of officiousness of it, and they all exit and then re-enter upstage in a snaking line, going to some offstage synagogue for the wedding. Here's the klezmorum. This is the same passage that Alexei Rutmansky uses in Shostakovich trilogy. It's used in um, Shostakovich's chamber symphony. 
So the suggestion here, it's, it's, there's all sorts of references, but it's very much making a, a kind of very somber statement about what the Russians read as too Jewish and kind of a cartoon, and it's anything but for Jakobsen. And it's forbidden for five years until it's finally performed um, two months before he dies, and again, all reviews are suppressed in Moscow and Leningrad. And this is the final moment is the poor, um, the poor lover of the bride who cannot marry her. He's too poor. She's given off in an arranged marriage to adult. He is the failed hero. He has the one solo in the ballet, and at the end, he crawls the length of the stage on his knees, cupping and swallowing his own tears, the idea of a grief that just keeps circulating. He's also a double affront because he's a failed hero in a Soviet enterprise that is about remaking the Shtetl Luftmensch, the kind of heroicized Soviet and um, Jew from the weak, sickly, um, emotion-saturated creature into something very different. And Jakobsen revives him and makes him the hero of his ballet. Um, so the, I think the levels in which he's talking back um, only get more intense. Now we move to the very final examples where we're moving into the um, live demonstrations in just a moment. This is um, the Rodin series. Um, and Jakobsen, the, the other big frontier he breached was eroticism in ballet. Um, if you think about the, the idea of a Soviet nude, it's, it's bloodless, um, it's, it's free of any sensuality, it's very dry, and Jakobsen wanted to reinsert eroticism into the dancing body and the stage. So he made a series of Rodin miniatures, um, and we're going to show you when I turn this over to Wendy, um, five poses, live poses from five of the Rodin miniatures. He would open the performance with this frozen tableau of the sculptures and then move into each figure one by one. In case you don't have a ready reference for Soviet sculpture, I wanted to provide you with one. This is the heroic, stolid body um, as opposed to this body, which is the inspiration for Jakobsen's um, Eternal Spring, The Kiss, Eternal Idol, this is Paolo and Francesca and Minotaur and Nymph. Now these are locked in the downstairs vault of the Hermitage because Rodin is not allowed to be on view any more than Chagall is um, during the Soviet time, but there is a sympathetic curator at the Hermitage who unlocks that door for Jakobsen um, and gives him access to study these for his ballet. The bodies of the two dancers in the kiss unfurl and rewind in bursts of passion softened by tiny drams of calm. She's like a playful adolescent girl stroking and then fleeing from her partner who gently pursues her for the wild intimacy of resting his face briefly in the curve of her neck. They are both restless and hungry not so much to embrace as simply to touch. They run their hands lightly over the length of one another's bodies, as if to paraphrase Romeo Montague, hands not only did what lips do, but eyes as well. Viewed from a length of more than 50 years, the sensuality here feels modest and the actual physical engagement tame. But the quality of the dancers pressing into uncharted territory is evident. It's not the steps, but rather the momentum of the invention that is the strongest impression 
in all the Rodin miniatures. And I'm going to talk a little bit more here. Um, this is the Minotaur and the Nymph danced by our own Wendy Van Dyke and Jim Sohn. The Minotaur and the Nymph churns through the violence of an impending rape, shown in the spectacular struggle of the hunkered down, short-necked figure of the man-bull figure of the Minotaur and the slight, desperate nymph. Jakobsen captures the emotional energy of this erotic subject by showing us their desperate conflict through tightly coordinated partnering that looks like combat and passion at the same time. The nymph is trapped in a shrieking, shrinking cycle of escape and capture, like a mouse being toyed with by a cat. The minotaur wraps her around his waist as if she were a belt, and yet later yanks her onto his shoulders as she reaches imploringly into space, growing more exhausted with each count encounter. Jakobsen's choreography discloses the eroticism of this predatory cruelty. By all accounts of those who were there, Jakobsen helped bring down the prohibitions on eroticism and sexuality on the ballet stage with Rodin. He used the erotic force of stillness as an important element in his arsenal by beginning and ending the ballets with these frozen poses. Opening with stillness was novel for Soviet ballet in these decades because it took a step backward from the puritanical realism art was supposed to present. Instead, Jakobsen's choreography revealed dance as an invention, but one that made life more vivid. Jakobsen made ballets that turned the tools of propaganda back on themselves. He made dances that changed the way people thought about their lives, they change the way we now think about history. They change the way we remember and honor the force of art, artists, and individuals in the world.